understand geopolitics, you must have the freedom to be honest. The More Freedom Foundation podcast. So did you enjoy that uh, shocking Turkish election where Rodolur... <laughs> Derolu won? Kilis Big victory, yeah? Kilis yes. That'd be nice to live in that uh, nice to live in that world. Maybe we are living in that world. That'd be, that'd be, Maybe we are. That'd be pretty but great. But we just don't know it yet. Yeah, that'd be pretty great. Uh, well, it's now over a week later, uh, and uh, I, I assume that it didn't didn't quite happen that way. There is something I'm, I am happy about, though. Uh, okay. I, I, I am pleased that we were now um, we're now doing these uh, these chats in audio and video. Yes, this is very exciting. Uh, so we because we want people to keep listening on uh, Spotify, Apple, Google, and all other podcast places. Uh, we upload the conversations on Monday. But then for those who are more, uh, say, visual, uh, visually entertained, uh, we have now put together a new uh, subsidiary YouTube channel, uh, Even More Freedom. Uh, this was voted on by the, uh, the YouTube audience. Uh, it is Even More Freedom. And on Wednesdays, you get the Monday conversation with uh, Rory and I's smiling faces. Uh, so it's uh, uh, very excited about that. It's kind of fun. Uh, those things tend to do well, uh, on the YouTube, uh, but folks had been asking for a, uh, the ability to watch these conversations on YouTube. And we now have that, that YouTube channel is even more freedom and, uh, you should definitely subscribe there, whether or not you actually want to see our faces because just love subscribers, love subscribers. Would you like to talk about something you don't love? Yes. Yeah. We have another, uh, depressing, uh, topic prompted by some really great research uh, put out by the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a Washington, D.C. think tank. Uh, they do seem to be a bit uh, left-leaning, but these are serious folks. Uh, the organization has got a bunch of uh, Nobel Prize-winning economists on their board, uh, and what they came out with in May of 2023 is a report that we should all read uh, and very few will, uh, called The Human Consequences of Economic Sanctions. And it's an incredibly important topic that we don't spend enough time uh, paying attention to on this channel, uh, and nobody pays any serious attention to. I feel like the only time that sanctions are discussed uh, in the mainstream media in the United States is mostly to endorse them. Uh, to say, isn't it a great job? Isn't it a great thing? When they come up in politics, it's usually demands for more, longer, stronger uh, sanctions. Well, there's a lot of fanfare about whatever sanctions are being applied to Russia aren't enough, or every country should be applying the same sanctions. Yes. It's all about, oh, people aren't sanctioning enough. We're not, we're not sanctioning hard enough, rather than looking at this rather large uh, diversifying uh, set of sanctions that we've just just hold on to. There's no political benefit in stopping sanctioning a place. So there's a lot of political cost. So these actions are kind of immortal, and they also don't work. Sadly, uh, for the vast majority, according to this paper. Uh, what is it? Ana it's analyzed 32 research papers, and out of 32, uh, 30 said it had a negative effect on the poorest. Yes. So it, it's they don't, on the political level, 
they don't work. And as these folks have done exhaustive work putting together, uh, they tend to be really, really terrible for the economies of the sanctioned places. But uh, they do nothing to the political leadership, the people that we're nominally trying to change the behavior of. Uh, we've sanctioned North Korea for my entire adult life. We've sanctioned Iran for my entire life. Uh, we have sanctioned Cuba for the entirety, all, since my mother was a 10-year-old. Uh, she just celebrated her 73rd birthday. Um, the, and they don't work. They do not make governments change. They do not change behavior. So, Rob, what are economic sanctions? <laughs> uh, so, sanctions are a tremendously diverse set of things. I tend to divide them up into sort of uh, run-of-the-mill sanctions that I don't particularly care about and don't complain mm -hmm. about too much. Though these uh, folks do make a, make a strong case that even those... Uh, sanctions just sort of, uh, okay, this, this government official who's responsible for brutalizing Uyghurs in Xinjiang, he, his accounts are frozen. Even, but even those sorts of sanctions actually uh, do have an impact on the broader populations. But generally speaking, I'm not going to lose any sleep if uh, some... Yeah, and I don't think this report goes into that, really. They, uh, it, 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 at some points, uh, I've read half of the 100-page report. Wow. I'm, I'm not sure. I've read the summary you give me, but I did not <laughs> dive into the full report. Uh, so I made, it, I made it a solid halfway through, and they do point that some of the 30 studies that they analyze point out that even the minor uh, individual targeted sanctions... Sorry, targeted, that's the word. Uh, run-of-the-mill targeted sanctions do have negative costs for the economies involved. Uh, but what's really terrible, what's really disruptive is the broader, uh, I call them kill your economy uh, sanctions. Uh, a more technical term would be secondary sanctions, which is the United States not simply saying that no U.S. actor is allowed to do business with this country, saying that no no business bank or entity in the entire world is allowed to do business with Iran, is allowed to do business with Syria, is allowed to do business with Venezuela. Uh, those are the three business, three countries that we have targeted uh, in that way uh, most strongly uh, over the past decade. Uh, and those are just um, an atrocity, frankly. Uh, the famous uh, initial version of these kill your country sanctions were applied to Iraq in the 1990s in the aftermath of their failed invasion of Kuwait. Uh, the standard line that was bandied about college campuses when I was on a college campus in the 1990s was that U.S. sanctions had killed half a million Iraqi children. Half a million Iraqi children. Now, I... I'm not 100% sure that that half a million figure is correct. Maybe it was only 200,000 Iraqi children murdered by U.S. sanctions. Regardless, I don't, um, I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's much better. Uh, and the U.S. has certainly never apologized for that. In, 19, in 1996, it, there was enough international outcry 
over what was being done to Iraq and the Iraqi population that a oil for food program was initialized, essentially forced on the United States back when there were fewer things going on in the international uh, arena. Uh, the oil for food program was almost exclusively covered in the United States around violations of it. Oh, no, uh, Saddam Hussein is getting something he shouldn't get under this. But I do think it is worthwhile and talks about, I think it's interesting that back in the 90s, there was actually some pushback against this war crime that the United States was committing against Iraq, uh, this humanitarian uh, disaster. Uh, and that the United States acquiesced in actually uh, taking some steps to, to lessen that. Unfortunately, that doesn't appear to exist anymore. Uh, that that um, that uh, pressure on the United States. Uh, one of the most the darkest uh, moments in uh, this report, which is a hundred page report. Well, we'll link it in the the various descriptions. It's uh, very very worth reading. It's very thorough. Um, one of the darkest moments is uh, reminding me of something. Uh, when the Biden administration came to uh, power, it acknowledged that the Trump administration specifically had been overusing the sanctioned uh, weapon and that there had to be some kind of examination. So an exhaustive, exhaustive uh, uh, research and was put, you know, was done into our sanctions policies and a comprehensive report was released. That report was seven pages long. Hmm. Um, I, th this report is a hundred pages long and it really only deals with three countries, uh, it's focused on Iran, Venezuela, and Afghanistan. Uh, the entire, uh, U S sanctions program, uh, merited about seven pages of introspection from the Biden administration. So this is a, this is a bipartisan policy of uh, starving some of the poorest countries in the world to death. Uh, I think another factor that might get missed is because these countries are often incredibly poor, I know Iran has quite a bit of wealth, but because they're so poor, even if America decides to stop trading with them, it, America can quite often be their largest partner just because of its sheer wealth. So when it says oh, we're not dealing with you, it can just completely crash these countries into poverty, you know, deeper and deeper poverty. Yeah, uh, that's that's a huge, uh, huge, huge factor. Uh, what's also uh, this is it gets off topic a little bit, but I was surprised in this report to learn that it was a very similar dynamic uh, with Iran and with Afghanistan because of the United States' central position in the uh, world financial system. A lot of countries keep their bank reserves on uh, deposited with the United States. They're in New York, or uh, and what happened when the Shah was kicked out of Iran is the United States froze a lot of that money and essentially ran off with it. I think under differing negotiations over the past forty years, some of that money has been repatriated, but most of it was just used to pay off. Uh, uh, American uh, lenders uh, who who were owed money by Iran, uh, and that's uh, that's just kind of extraordinary. And the exact same thing happened when the Taliban took power in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, right now, uh, widespread starvation is a serious issue. 
very some of that is uh, Taliban mismanagement, though absolutely everybody, including the Economist, concedes that they were they are much better managers of uh, Afghanistan than the U.S. sponsored Afghan government was. Um, but most credit, including I was surprised to find in this report. Uh, David Miliband, who was a he was a yeah. he was a Labour Party leader in the UK. Yeah, he was uh, he was yeah in charge of Labour and uh, lost an election, but he's now quite high up in Labour again in the United Kingdom. So he's a, but he's a pretty establishment politician. This is oh, not some yeah. fire breathing leftist. Uh, what have no, you? No, no, he's definitely considered. Um, uh, more, on more of the more right side of Labour, so he wasn't uh, too close to Jeremy Corbyn, for instance. So he's like a Tony Blair uh, type figure, more or less. Close, but not definitely not as right as him, but yeah. in the same clubhouse. He probably has some regrets about the Iraq war. So anyway, David Miliband, who's you know a pretty establishment figure, uh, pointing out that the main reason Afghanistan is starving right now is because the United States stole its central bank. Uh, we basically just ran off with it. Um, and that's just something that the United States can do. So even before the United States gets to the point where they're like, mm, nobody's allowed to do any business with this country, uh, we have the ability to cripple uh, a country. That's what we've done to Afghanistan. There's widespread starvation in Afghanistan right now. The U.S. media that spent so much time talking about how much it cared about the Afghan women we were abandoning is talking not at all about the fact that Afghan women are starving to death because we ran off with their central bank funds and essentially shut down their economy. Which is, it's Afghanistan is one of the most poorest countries in the world. Absolutely. Uh, no question. No question. Uh, I, I've got to say this report, and I always mean to read more reports. It's kind of fascinating. If you're willing to dedicate three hours to reading a 40-page report, uh, the wealth of information that is out there is honestly stunning. Uh, and so few people do it. I have friends, I've had a series of friends who worked at the World Bank and they're like, do you understand how valuable the reports we put together are? How much time and effort and money and thought goes into these things? And literally nobody ever reads them. And I was it was just sort of stunning to me reading this, uh, this report, just how many like just basic details uh, of policy are laid out very clearly. They're not politically contentious. Um, and I think the main, my main takeaway was how the Biden administration has changed essentially nothing. Um, it's Iran sanctions policy is the exact same maximum pressure policy that uh, the Trump administration was operating. I think there's a lot, uh, I, uh, to be clear, I, have, I think that's uh, an atrocity, that is uh, an insanity, and an inanity makes no sense. Uh, but uh, there are political reasons why uh, Biden is Biden's administration are just as in hoc to the U.S. military industrial complex as a, as the Republicans are. But the Venezuela thing is particularly inexplicable. Uh, like we're still on some level pretending that the government of Venezuela is not the government of Venezuela. Um, and as this report lays out, like if we um if we are pretending that the government of Venezuela is not the government of Venezuela, uh, then nobody can do business with the government of Venezuela, nobody in the United States. And because the United States and its banking system is so influential, uh, mm -hmm. nobody can really do business with the Venezuelan government. But then also, I know there's like companies can then get scared 
if they're seen dealing with Venezuela, that then America will, uh, you know, sanction them at some point down the road. So quite often, just everyone avoids them. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and this was actually really clarifying for me. There's a great graphic uh, on Venezuela oil production that talks about the way that um, U.S. sanctions have essentially destroyed Venezuela oil production. Uh, to be clear, uh, and I put this in videos before that I now feel like I may need to correct, uh, the Venezuelan government did itself no favors. Uh, what it did to its state oil company was pretty uh, dramatic and pretty disastrous. Uh, to some extent, this was self-inflicted. But what I did not did not quite uh, understand, um, because I was thinking in terms of the 2019 sanctions that the Trump administration put in place, uh, but actually the U.S. imposed financial sanctions two years prior. So I was blaming the Venezuelan oil industry for the fall of uh, the um, uh, Venezuelan oil production from, say, 2.4 million barrels a day uh, all the way down to uh, 1 million barrels a day. Uh, but actually, no, uh, it only was responsible for the fall from like 2.4 to like 1.9. Um, and the rest of it from like 1.9 all the way down to mostly zero by 2020 wow. uh, was entirely U.S. sanctions. And the cost of that has just been incredibly brutal. Uh, as this report lays because out. Because Venezuela has the largest oil reserves, but they're incredibly low quality. Yes. So there's a lot of reasons why that doesn't quite um, doesn't quite uh, manage. Uh, yeah, so Venezuela's food imports. Here's a, that's one. Uh, yeah, just the, the incredible plummet in their food imports. Uh, keep in mind that whenever sanctions are laid out, this is an aftermath of the 1990s Iraq experience, uh, the U.S. government is incredibly careful to point out, oh, no, no, there's all these humanitarian exceptions. There's all those, you know, we definitely let food and medicine in. We promise for sure that's what's happening. Um, Venezuela's food imports between 2012 and 2020, okay, uh, they fell uh, from $8 billion worth to $2 billion worth. Wow. Um, so that's just like $6 billion less food. That the Venezuelans are getting serious malnutrition, um, and I think that and when you consider America is such a breadbasket, yeah, but it's not just America because mm -hmm. oh yeah, everyone joins in because you're not if you are put in this sort of secondary sanction uh, uh, box, nobody's allowed to do business with you. Uh, this is uh, this is I, I feel bad. I actually have to correct a Venezuela video now. Uh, in 20, I think 19 or thereabouts, the Russian government pulled out of, uh, Venezuela. Uh, they, because at that point, uh, they had, they were sort of the main intermediary, uh, for a lot of Venezuela's oil production. Uh, that's incorrect. But as far as like its export and production refining, uh, the Russians were a big, big factor. And I thought, and I'd said in a video that they had pulled out because, uh, the Venezuelans weren't paying their bills. That was the Russian government's cover story. But no, the Russians too didn't want to fall afoul 
of the U.S. sanctions. So they pulled out entirely. And I, I hadn't quite... In 2019, the U.S. government made a huge deal about trying to overthrow the Venezuelan government. They introduced much more ruinous sanctions on the Venezuelan oil industry, uh, and they came up with a pretend president, uh, Guiado. Um, who looked a bit like Obama. Yeah. And uh, I had completely neglected that in August 2017, a full two years prior, uh, the U.S. had imposed financial sanctions, which essentially made uh, it impossible for Venezuela to work with anybody in a banking capacity. So this catastrophic situation, I remember Nikki Haley down on the border, uh, the Venezuela-Colombian border, talking about how horrible it was, the mass starvation that the ruinous Venezuelans had had put together. Um, but, but, but that was two years, no, that was a year and a half after the United States had already put financial sanctions on Venezuela. So the incredible, ruinous, horrific humanitarian catastrophe that we talked about was largely created by U.S. sanctions. Uh, Is this because they nationalized their oil company? No. Uh, their, oh. na their oil company had been nationalized since the 1970s. Uh, mm -hmm. What had happened, what Chavez had done, and I think that fairly... This is condemned um, not just in, you know, sort of right-wing hawk circles, is what had happened is the P, uh, I can, it's PVDSA or PDFDFSA, PVDSA, PVDSA, I don't know, whatever, um, was a national oil company nationalized in the 1970s that was renowned for being very well run. It was renowned for doing a pretty great job. What happened was Chavez and then Maduro following him packed it with all manner of cronies who didn't really know what they're doing. Uh, famously, uh, the Mexican oil industry seems to now largely be being run by old Venezuelan engineers uh, because they're pretty good at their job, uh, but they were not politically acceptable uh, to the Chavez regime. Uh, so that... Um, had uh, a really negative effect on uh, the, the Venezuelan oil company that continues uh, to be a problem. But I hadn't really appreciated the fact that U.S. sanctions had actually started a year and a half prior to the terrible humanitarian crisis that convinced the Trump administration uh, that they just had to intervene by picking a new Venezuelan government. And to be clear... That failed. That failed miserably. Uh, Juan Guiado is a international joke. Um, I haven't, I'm not sure to what extent Biden has backed off. Uh, actually, yes, I know that to a significant extent, the Biden administration has backed off the Venezuela issue because they want to let Europe purchase oil. But I think that's a really key indicator of how powerful these U.S. sanctions are, is that in the beginning of, or mid-2022, because of concerns about the European oil and gas market, the United States decided to give Europe permission to buy oil yeah. from Venezuela. Does, and and that, I think it's unacknowledged the extent to which that's how U.S. sanctions work. The U.S. has to give permission mm -hmm. for anybody to do to anything. the second largest economic block in the world? Yes. Uh, the, this also came up uh, during the uh, Turkey-Syria earthquake. 
the earthquake on the the horrific earthquake on the Turkey Syria border that involved sixty thousand uh, casualties, um, a lot of them in Syria. The U.S. government had to and did so maybe after everyone had died. Uh, you know, after there was no longer a possibility of digging anybody out. But about two weeks later, uh, the U.S. government did issue a six month uh, waiver for people to give humanitarian aid to Syria. That's how sweeping these sanctions are, that nobody was allowed to help out in Syria until nobody in the world was allowed to help out in Syria until the United States said, okay, you can help them dig up from this earthquake a little bit. And that ends basic help. And that ends in August, by the way. Then that that that's oh. o- that's over, um, and Syria goes back to uh, a place. No you're, help you're, from the outside world at all. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's also really that's also really illustrative, because they talk about smart sanctions uh, as opposed to those terrible dumb sanctions that killed half a million Iraqi children in the nineties. There's always humanitarian exemptions, always humanitarian exemptions, uh, but. They needed, it became clear, and the U.S. government acknowledged that the world needed further exemptions to do humanitarian stuff in Syria. Um, so it's, 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 it's essentially, it's, it's BS. Like, there are no humanitarian exemptions. There are legal humanitarian exemptions. If you're willing to get involved in whatever court process is necessary... Uh, to prove to everybody, this is not a court process that exists, uh, that you are not violating sanctions. So the, the pernicious way that this works, and it works everywhere, whether you're a food provider, whether you are a medicine provider, whether you are a bank providing the basic finance necessary for a country to function, is that no matter how many humanitarian exemptions are put in place officially by the U.S. government, you refuse to do any business with anybody in Iran. Um, you'll note that on most, I don't know if you ever tried to do this on any kind of server, any kind of, uh, popular, um, uh, tool on the internet or something like that. I have been in a position where I was like, oh, I'd love to advertise some of these videos I've made in Iran. Iran mm-hmm. is simply not on the list. It's oh, not a country. Funny though. Yeah. Try it out. Try it out sometime. Like wow. you, you can't engage with any service in the world electronically uh, there are exceptions of course i take it this would include um obvious um money transfer apps yes it's incredibly difficult to get money to people in iran um that's mm-hmm. one of the very few applications use cases for crypto for crypto yeah um there's sort of like iran the palestinians the north koreans and a few other syrians a few other places uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure crypto has been a real lifeline for the Venezuelans we've been serving to get, serving to death as well. I've also heard a strange way Venezuelans make money. There's a, a massively multi online multiplayer game called um, RuneScape, mm-hmm. and apparently um, Venezuelans are known for just mining the most basic element in it to sell it because it's worth more than their own currency. Oof, that is incredibly grim. Very, very, it is. very science fiction. I have an incredibly hot take, if you'd like to hear it. Sure. So, why was Bin Laden in Afghanistan? Uh, because he was kicked out of Sudan? And there weren't a lot yeah, of places why, for him to go? Was it possible that Afghanistan basically had no way to make any money? 
Oh, well, that was certainly a, a key part of it. They loved having uh, wealthy. Uh, so if they had, say, access to international markets and were treated like a normal country, is there a chance they wouldn't have put up with such a man? Uh, that's not a hot take, Rory. That's that's fact. That's uh, that 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 is just that's sim- that's the simple case, and that's one of the things I've been talking about with with Afghanistan. It's just so idiotic because it's almost exactly what we did in the nineties, uh, which was we um, we we got what we wanted out of the place. We we sold a bunch of weapons. Uh, we beat our enemy, and then we pieced out. And uh, there was Taliban was already being sanctioned. It's a very key point. Taliban was already being sanctioned uh, yeah. before. 9-11. So this Saudi billionaire um, who showed up uh, was given a lot of leeway. So it's sort of crazy if you consider, you know, the average person's wealth in the West, you'd consider this, you'd consider yourself incredibly wealthy compared to someone in Afghanistan, but the likes of bin Laden is just like stratospheric. Yeah. So bin Laden was no doubt, uh, bin Laden, his activities, his charity, his uh, training camps, were no doubt like uh, a percentage of Afghan GDP in the late 90s and early aughts. And the reason behind that is because the U.S. government had sliced them out of any financial participation. We are now slicing Afghanistan and the Taliban out of any world financial participation. We are creating, recreating the situation that turned Afghanistan into a terrorist uh, haven. Um it's it and and it never works. Like North Korea is no. still North Korea, Cuba's still Cuba, yeah. Iran's still Iran. It, it's nothing. It just makes us feel good and starves children to death. That's that's the main function. Because um, I remember reading in the report terms, like for Iran, which you know I've said before is kind of middle classly wealthy um, for world um, rankings. Uh, the medicine isn't uh, is being sanctioned, so it talked things about like um, stunt, uh, stunting growth in females, other horrible. Just well, it kind of goes too far into it to the point it's very depressing. But just a lot of basic medicines just don't get there because sanctions. Yeah. So we we say that oh, of course anybody can import. Um, anybody can import any kind of medicine into Iran. That's just fine. But if you look at what's actually happened, there has been shortages of every, of like 65 vital medicines in Iran. Uh, I can't remember what the exact figure is from the report. In Venezuela, it's like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's uh, well, the problems in Iran or Venezuela are serious because such poor management by these communists or these mullahs or these, da, 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 da. no, like it, it's, and it, it's it, it's incredibly, I mean, it, it's it is a horror show, but it's also just profoundly petty, and and sad. It's like it's like a high school bully being like, "Oh, stop hitting yourself," you know, like you know, uh, forcing, you know, uh, grabbing a hand and, and slapping a little kid with it and saying, "Stop hitting yourself." Uh, it's just, it, it is, it's evil, frankly, it is, uh, these sanctions. But it reminds policy. me a lot of what happened Gaddafi. I'm sure a lot of people high-fived high in high-end parts of NATO when he was killed, but it's just destroyed that country. How many millions of women are in our hundreds of thousands are being trafficked? All because it was just nice to kill that guy because you didn't like him. 
because the people at because uh, um, Kim Jong Un he seems to be having quite a happy life. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? The sanctions don't hurt the yeah. people they're designed to hurt. They just destroy the lives of the the poorest in that country. The the report is careful to put this saying this is just one of the reports we 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 viewed. Uh, not entirely certain, but one of the thirty reports they viewed said that. Uh, in the sanctions that were examined, the sanctions were debilitating for the bottom four quintiles of the population and actually helped the top quintile. So they actually made wow. the richer, the rich richer. So these sanctions... Is it because the populace is so weak, they have no real ability to overthrow the government? Because they become more dependent on the government. Um, hmm. This is the famous dynamic. Uh, probably the closest that Iran got to being overthrown was in 2009, the Green Revolution. And then the Obama administration, instituted. this was 2009, the Green Revolution. And then in 2012, uh, the uh, Obama administration started the broader sanctioning of the Iranian oil market uh, and essentially destroyed the Iranian middle class. Um, you, we certainly saw, uh, actually I think the, the recent protests are probably the biggest that we've seen in Iran since 2009 and some argue they're, they're larger. There's a Masa Amini protests over the, the hijab or what have you, but the middle class that generally tends to bring about real change in a country has been absolutely debilitated, um, and without that middle class, the folks that have uh, a, a broad class of folks who have a stake in the system and a stake in the system's prosperity and like might be able to change it, when you eviscerate and them, time to protest. Yeah, when you when you when you wipe out that class, uh, the chances of real change also are eviscerated. Uh, the um, on my Discord, uh, Fadel is always talking about uh, Iraq in the seventies and eighties and how. Uh, it had re you know, it had a real middle class. It had, uh, obviously it had terrible governments, but it had a middle class that could constrain in some sense Saddam Hussein or whatnot. And then the Iran Iraq war followed by, uh, the U S sanctions just utterly wiped out that class. Uh, and then you saw the, the Iraq of today that has the, the, the pathologies that it, that it does, um, because that middle class was wiped out by. Uh, U.S. sanctions, and yeah, it's just it's uh, it's horrible. It's pointless. Uh, the only thing that I think that these sanctions actually manage to do is they shore up, you know, awful forms of government. They are like reservations uh, for war for later wars. They are basically they they put a country in the freezer and ensure that their horrible government is preserved long enough for the U.S. military-industrial complex to build up the, the, um, the, the public appetite for an actual war. That's what happened with Iraq. You know, in the aftermath of Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, we could have kicked them out. We sort of said, okay, and you can never do that again. No one can ever do that again. Let's start regular trade. No, instead, we, we sort of cauterized it and, like, turned it into this... Um, just festering sore of a country, um, made it worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and pointed out that, you know, after killing its middle class, starving all these children to death, see, look, look how horrible Iraq is. The only way to deal with it is to, 
is to invade it and take it over. Um, yeah, so sanctions essentially just just make awful regimes more powerful um, and keep them in power so the United States can eventually bomb them. That's a hot take. Well, that's an incredibly depressing take. <laughs> that's that's uh, but that's a hot take, and I think and I think that's frankly that's I don't know if that's how they intentionally operate, but that's how they operate in practice. Do you think it's a way of helping neighboring countries? Is this like America's doing a favor to neighboring countries, or is it just all round terrible? Like who who benefits truly from I mean, this? Generally, apart from the American industrial complex, I think the old Colombian government was probably on board with our sanctioning of Venezuela to some degree, and that maybe have something to do with why Colombia okay. has this just they have a huge refugee influx from Venezuela. Well, I was going to say, but like that, that Trump friendly Colombian government, uh, was replaced by like the first left wing, uh, government in 50 years. So maybe the Colombian public is not so happy with the idea of sanctioning Venezuela. Cause I'm pretty sure Gustavo Petro, uh, the left, the relatively new left wing president of, of Colombia is not a big fan of, uh, us sanctions on Venezuela. Uh, in the Middle East, it's quite clear that nobody's interested anymore. I think uh, for sure, uh, you know, the Arab League participated in the U.S.'s initial sanctioning of the Assad regime in Syria uh, dating back a decade. Uh, I don't think they, any of them had any interest in the ruinous, evil Caesar sanctions that were put in place just in the past two or three years. It was essentially after... The United States realized that we had lost and our effort to overthrow Assad had failed. Then we decided to instantiate much more ruinous secondary sanctions. I think that was 2020 that came into effect or something like that. And it is, you know, there were some green shoots of Syrian recovery uh, after large scale fighting largely ended in 2018, 2019 or so. And those green shoots have been crushed down uh, by U.S. sanctions. Uh, renewed Caesar sanctions is what they're called, um, and it's it's just it, it's just nightmarish. Jordan uh, is probably the most comfortably, pleasantly U.S. aligned country in the entire region, and they are being debilitated by Syria sanctions. I mean, that's their that's their main outlet to the sea is Syria. Uh, yeah. And they share a massive border with them. I mean, Jordan is a longstanding monarchy, but it's propped up heavily by the United States and has generally looked pretty solid up until the past five or six years when the effects of Syria, the sanctions uh, have rolled over. So the entire Arab League is now ready. I think the, that meeting already happened, I believe. Uh, they invited Assad. Uh, he came to the Arab League meeting. He's back there. Um, but nothing can actually happen. Syria cannot begin to be rebuilt until the United States lifts its sanctions. It's just impossible. That, and I, th I, I feel like people don't really quite understand it. I don't even know how many congressmen understand this. When like we sanction a country, we are not just saying that the U.S. won't have anything to do with them. There are some countries that are sanctioned in that way. Uh, I, you know, I, haven't, I think we still sanction Zimbabwe, and I don't know that we go out of our way to keep anybody else from doing business with them. But like, and you know, I, I'm not a fan of any kind of sanctions, but like, fine, if we're just, you know, 
don't do that. And I guess we don't yeah, yeah, do it's, anything. If it's just America. It, it's at least understandable. But the way that our sanctions work and the way that more and more of our sanctions work now is that we forbid anybody from doing any kind of business. So yes, uh, nominally China's doing all this peacemaking and the Arab League is happy to sit down with Assad, but no Saudi or Chinese construction company can help them begin to rebuild until we lift those sanctions. Uh, and that, I think that was a really interesting example from Venezuela, where sure, the Russians were like, uh, yeah, we're leaving Venezuela because the Venezuelans don't pay their bills, when in fact, they were just getting out of there so they, weren't, they wouldn't fall afoul of US sanctions. Of American sanctions. Yeah. Uh, and you see a what lot of What would that. you recommend instead of sanctioning if you wanted to, I don't know, punish a country for doing a genocide? Um, I mean, I think there's some cases where a sanction isn't necessarily the wrong thing to do. I think targeted sanctions are... For individuals seizing people's yachts, that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, I'm perfectly fine with that sort of thing. But it's clear... It, it, we've learned over and over and over again that you don't actually uh, hurt the governments with these sanctions. I mean, to be clear, and I think, I think there's a confusion over what a sanction is. And I think this, the, the way that sanctions work right now is actually a really great illustration of one of the fundamental themes of my channel, which is that the United States is so, so much more powerful. So if you and think... People a, give it credit for? Yeah. If you think... A, there's this idea that... I keep hearing is, you know, oh, China's rising, America's falling, it's only a matter of time. So a lot of people see them as eye to eye, when I think in reality it's very different. Yeah. I mean, if China, China will cheat uh, if it needs cheap oil, um, but it has to cheat. Like it has to hide things. It has to be very subterfuge. You know, it's, it's black market. It's careful. It's not something it can openly do uh, when it wants to buy oil from Iran. Um, it, it has to come up with, with, with subterfuge. So fundamentally, like if you think a country is doing a genocide and you have the wherewithal and the backing of the United Nations, go to war with that country, you know, because there's this idea that, oh, sanctions are, uh, an alternative to war and they're not, they are, they are an act of war. They, you know, the British Empire, when it wanted... Well, they often kill more people than if you had have went to war with them. Yeah, there was this... Oh, man, I underlined, it was in this report, there was this insane thing. I can't remember what it was. Um, that basically said the effects of U.S. sanctions uh, are in general... Uh, I'm not sure how strongly they endorsed this, but one of the reports said that the effects of U.S. sanctions have a significantly worse effect on life expectancies in given countries than a civil war. Wow. U.S. sanctions are worse for certain targeted countries than a civil war. Um, they are acts of war. They are starvation. They are the murder yeah. of children. And they seem to target children particularly more so than a war. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's when scarcity uh, becomes an issue. It's it's the children that are more vulnerable and die uh, more, more quickly. So it, it's obviously... You have to make choices, even as the United States. Oh, who are we going to go actually physically go to war against, bomb, invade, what have you? Um, but there's this this false idea that, oh, there's the easy choice. We'll just sanction them. And it, it doesn't, it's part of that, that, that 
pretend world that most U.S. policymakers live in, where we are not, in fact, in charge of the world, where, you know, there isn't there is no world government. It's just this this sort of thing that we're doing to uh, show uh, show that we think you're a bad guy. It's like, no, it, it is an act of war. It is the starvation and murder of the poorest people in a given country. Um, so I think there probably are, I think you can make a case, like I think sanctioning South Africa was a pretty good idea. Um, I think that you can, if a country is massively, massively dependent on the United States, uh, then maybe our sanctions can actually yield, um, quick changes as they, then the threats of sanctions might even be better than the actual sanctions. Um, like maybe there are cases, I don't want to be like super like, oh, they're, they're always evil. They're always wrong. Um, but like, but you're essentially, um, sieging a country. Yes. It's, it is an act of war. It, it is war. Um, and it's part of this delusion, uh, we have about us power, uh, and this idea that like, uh, the U S isn't as massively powerful as it is is where this this sort of fantasy that, oh, we're just sanctioning, it's fine. Um, and how, how dare you lift a sanction? That's terrible. That's endorsing. It is not endorsing a country to lift sanctions. It is allowing a country to live. Um, yeah, do the basics. Yeah. Even it, just trade with its neighbors more easily. Yes. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, it's not a fun, it's not a fun topic. Uh, and I think that's why it's so important that people read reports like this, uh, like the human consequences of economic sanctions. And uh, I I think, frankly, the moral argument should be enough. Like, we should murder fewer kids. Um, but uh, fine, uh, because this is a geopolitics podcast, like, if you're really concerned about the rise of China, or like, which I don't think is a real concern before for the United States until at least the 2030s. But anyway, um, if you're really concerned about the rise of China, you should be really, really worried about the abuse of U.S. sanctions power, because these are the examples uh, that the Chinese government uses to be like, look at this evil imperial monster that is the United States. We don't need to do any of this stuff. It doesn't benefit us in any way. And it makes China look a lot better by comparison. This format, this, uh, uh, um, this report points out that like, Something like 25% of the world economy is currently under some form of U.S. sanction. Uh, people are worried about losing U.S. dollar dominance. Well, that's, that's, this is the main reason I don't believe that U.S. dollar dominance is currently threatened in any serious way. But this is the main argument for anybody who wants to uh, stay off it. Yeah. Who wants to get away from the dollar is the, the U the overuse of sanctions. And I think it's important to point out that like yeah, very few people are putting this in as strong terms as we are here. They're not talking about us sanctions as the evil acts of murder that they are. Um, but most anybody, including a lot of very establishment folks are just like, this is nuts. It's just hurting the United States's reputation. Uh, we should care more about the piles of dead children, but uh, I think a lot of very establishment people, uh, even, you know, right-wing people are like, this is nuts. This is just, this is not even policy by autopilot. This is just dumb, brain-dead policy 
that is pissing people off at the United States and making them more interested in finding alternatives to the dollar. I know this report doesn't cover Russia, but you'd said about how it preserves the country and helps the the leader. Can you see this helping Putin? The sanctions Russia is currently on? Certainly, because you create an emergency. These are acts of war. You create a an attack on a country, and uh, war is the health of the state. I think is a, that's the Randolph Bourne quote. Uh, and yeah, it's it's fundamentally you shore up the regime by doing these sanctions, by uh, carrying out the this murderous economic attack on a country. You create a situation where ad hoc things need to be done. The state needs to step in to figure out how we're going to handle this sort of thing. You actually create a legitimate reason for an overweening state to become more involved in the economy to make sure that basic needs are met. So you give more in any system. If you do sanctions, if you uh, attack a country this way, you create more incentives for the government to take power and be thanked by its people for taking that power. It, it, it's it's simply not a, uh, and absolutely we're seeing that dynamic play out uh, in Russia. Uh, Russia, the, you know, the Russian economy is doing poorly. And uh, obviously, according to anything that Putin will say, that's NATO's fault. Uh, and actually, according to NATO, that's NATO's fault. <laughs> Uh, it's, I think it's very satisfying. I think that, I think that there are, if the United States and Europe were actually capable of shutting down, uh, the consumption of, uh, Russian oil and gas, I think that would be good and defensible because this is a war. This is an actual war and it is absurd for Europe to be. And I think Europe has largely stepped away from even gas consumption by this point. Right. I mean, oh, I'm, definitely. Uh, it's, it's been quite a radical shift. Uh, I mean, but yeah, so the, the billions, I mean, but in the first six months of the conflict, uh, you know, they, they were sending billions to Russia every day. Uh, Europe was, yeah, I mean, that's a, in the context, because in Russia is essentially at war with the United States and NATO. And in that context, then yes, sanctions are, it's part of war making. They make sense. Yeah. Um, whether or not they actually work is uh, a more open question. Time will tell. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I feel like there's so many different deep arguments on either side of that particular conversation that I, I can't make any kind of real pronouncement at this point. I haven't done the research. Russia specifically. Do you feel a lot of these sanctions are kept purely out of habit? Because I could just imagine the headlines, say Biden gave up on all the sanctions on Cuba. It'd be almost like, you can't do this. We just always do that to Cuba. You're such a radical leftist. What are you going to do next? Yep. That's exactly it. That's And Biden has, has proven himself to be uh, dramatically less courageous than, and this is not a word I often use in relation to Obama, but Obama was much more willing uh, to, uh, you know, the best thing Obama did was, uh, his opening to Cuba. Um, and we have not gotten back there since, uh, in his last, have things gotten worse or have they sort of stayed where Obama left them? Oh, gotten much worse. Uh, so what did Cuba do? Huh? Nothing. They exist. Exist. Uh, (laughs) be hated, be hated by a lot of wealthy Florida voters. 
Um, so what happened was Obama finally, I think he went to Cuba, I think. Yeah, uh, I remember it. Yeah, he went to Cuba. There was not, it, it, and that's the crazy thing is there, there were still, under Obama, there were still plenty of sanctions on Cuba. Like it was like, we can buy cigars now. Yeah, and, never norm like will normalize. I know sanctions are now the new normal, but yeah, yeah, like they were never treated like Jamaica is, say. But he like I think he might have he you know maybe he just opened a consulate like he didn't like open an embassy or something or I, I don't I don't recall the exact details, but it was like a real concrete easing up on Cuba, and it was freaking great. And everybody and like it was one of the only things like Obama did that I was like uncritically like, yes, that's amazing. Thank you. That's awesome. I made a video saying so at the time. And one of the first things that Trump did uh, when he came into power was to shut that all down. I think, Jesus, I think he added Cuba to the state sponsors of terrorism list or something. And I don't I'm not 100 percent sure if Biden has taken them back off yet. That's how or maybe he did. I, I can't recall. But like that. Yeah. So. Yeah, Biden has done because Biden has done nothing uh, to let up on Iran. He's done a little to let up on Venezuela, um, because but now it seems like Europe is largely. Well, we'll see how this next winter goes. But if Iraq, if uh, Europe makes it through the next winter with no oil or gas problems, you can expect Biden to go back to trying to fully trying to murder Venezuela again. Um, so yeah, Biden is really quite cowardly um uh on these topics and very disappointing so if you were in charge would you just lift all of them yeah i mean north korea mm -hmm. probably not i think i would i would ask south korea what it wants what its ideal north korea policy is give it the choice yeah slowly easing legislation might be better as opposed to just floodgates? Uh, Syria and Venezuela, uh, 100% lifted. Uh, certainly the Caesar sanctions in Syria should be lifted outright. Uh, personal sanctions against like Syria, Assad and other regime figures, fine, obviously. Uh, but uh, all sanctions on Venezuela, there's, there is, that country poses us no threat. Um, and we are just, we are just murdering uh, murdering that country uh, for funsies, uh, for Florida politics, uh, which is uh, absolutely uh, in uh, reprehensible. Um, the but Syria, yeah, obviously some regime sanctions should re remain. Iran, it's part of a negotiation. Uh, it, it is a real concern uh, as Europeans, you know, nuclear uh, proliferation is a real concern. So it's worsened its likelihood of getting a nuclear weapon. Not really, no. It's so with the nuclear deal uh, in place from 2015 to 2018, they had no nuclear weapons program. I don't think they have a nuclear weapons program now. But what they are doing is they are enriching uh, uranium to points that are most likely might be owned. useful for yeah. such a thing. Uh, and that was not happening under the Iran nuclear deal. So I think at this point, the Iran nuclear deal is already mostly most of the way to expired. I think it was going to supposed to end in 2025 anyway, but like some kind of, uh, I would say certainly the way to open any kind of negotiation with Iran is to unilaterally lift, uh, the 2012 sanctions probably. And basically say, so, cause the United Nations has a, sanctions regime against Iran related to nuclear. And I would say, kick it to the Security Council and basically say, whatever sanctions the so UN- it's not America's fault, essentially. You're going with the 
the wider community? Yeah, go with the wider community. And I think, the, the, to be clear, those are much lighter. Um, so if I would unilaterally wipe away all U.S.-only sanctions related to the nuclear program, there are other sanctions from Iran that we've had maintained since the 70s. Those could be part of a later negotiation, but like as a sign of good faith, everything that Obama and Trump did, just sweep that away or rather sweep it down to whatever the UN wants. Uh, there's but a... also, wouldn't that help other countries work with it? Because although you say there's lighter sanctions with other countries, mm -hmm. they're still scared of America. Yes, for sure. The, I think it's the, the P5 plus one framework or whatever. It's like a bunch of European countries. Uh, and no, P5 plus one, that's like the, it's most of the Security Council and Germany. Whatever the P5 plus one wants um, is what my uh, ideal um, after, but the U.S. should unilaterally, uh, as a sign of good faith, uh, unilaterally uh, release all post-2012 sanctions that go beyond the P5 plus one. Um, that would be my uh, plan. So are we seeing sanctions are essentially America's most devastating weapon? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so devastating because people just aren't acknowledging what we're doing. It's just, oh, no, yeah, sanctions, blah, blah, blah. Um, oh, so strange that Venezuelans and Iranians and Syrians are starving and all their kids are dying. Um, hmm. Even though these were countries that had been doing well? Uh, I mean, that, that you... Well, they weren't starving. Yeah, they weren't starving. Um... Yeah, the, I, I just reading this report, I hadn't quite appreciated the extent to which uh, the Venezuelan humanitarian crisis was exacerbated by because I was just running on the assumption. Oh, yeah, like our big bad Venezuela sanctions started in 2019. No, actually, they started in 2017 and they helped to create the situation that we were supposedly helping with by picking a new uh, a new Venezuelan president. Uh, and I hadn't fully appreciated that. <sighs> Yeah, yeah, no, it's not a, it's not a good, it's not a good topic, uh, but I always feel like I don't talk enough about, uh, about U.S. sanctions. And now we've done it, and we can move on to more, more, more fun topics like making fun of uh, YouTube celebrities and complaining about uh, those terrible dictators like Erdogan. What's up? The, I think the big way for you to, um, to get a lot of traction would be is it M and M's you have to talk about? M and M's. There was big uh, controversy with apparently they changed one of their mascots. Oh. It wasn't a female Eminem anymore. Oh, uh, that was that's something Tucker to do Carlson with Tucker Carlson. Right? Was very excited about it. So I think that's what's really important. That's true. That's the that's the that's the stuff that the the public demands. I'll have to mm -hmm. look into the Eminem. An advertising campaign that most people didn't know existed. And there's something going on with Budweiser too, right? They they, they are yes, they had a transgendered person in an ad. Oh no! So Kid Rock <laughs> and a lot of other people have gotten very upset. Wow, that's uh, that sounds super important. Um, definitely, yeah, pay no attention to this pile of dead children. We've got uh, we've got a mid aughts uh, country rapper uh, All shooting beer cans. should be based on me and not anyone else. I, I think it seems so. to be. Yeah. I think with this AI, they could do that. You could be in every ad that you watch. Oh wow! What a delight. That's, that's great. I mean, yay. Yeah, God. Mm -hmm. uh, AI. Uh, how about AI for sanctions? Oh, God. <laughs> that just made me a little, that made, made me nauseous a little bit. But and I, if you want to, we must put an AI angle on this. It, it's just, it, it's already a testament 
the way that sanctions work is just a testament to how little attention is paid to the policy tools that we already have. It's 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 the it's it's frankly it's this holocaust uh, that's ongoing that most people are vaguely uh, most people who follow these events are vaguely aware of, but just don't choose to talk about much because they know there's no audience for it. So, mm-hmm. um, and it's pretty grim. Well, we'll catch you next time on the More Freedom Foundation <laughs> podcast. I mean, please come back after that. Jeez. Uh, what a great start to being visual. Yeah. 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 Anyway, thanks, folks. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is RobOLaw, and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire, What It Was and How the U.S. Can Do Better and music provided by Kevin McLeod.